0: Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defense and world affairs. This week, we're focusing on the key lessons being learned by the British military and the defense industry here from the war in Ukraine. We'll be speaking to the Director, Joint Warfare at UK Strategic Command.
1: The experience of the Ukraine conflict it is absolutely a tragedy, but it is, I think, a once in a generation opportunity to draw really profound insights and lessons from a modern Western battlefield.
0: We'll be hearing more shortly from Rear Admiral Andrew Betton, who's been speaking at the Defence Security Equipment International Show. And we'll speak to the former Head of the Army, General Lord Dannett, whose new book explores why Britain was unprepared for fighting the Second World War.
2: The Army has to take some responsibility for not having taken into itself the warfighting doctrine that it had learned so painfully uh, during the course of the First World
3: War. c with Kate Chabot and Professor Michael Clark.
0: and simon newton is also here today uh, hi simon um you've been run off your feet at that huge defence fair dsei looking forward to hearing more from you about that in a little while but um, but first mike hi um, can you give us a sense of the scale of uk spending on military aid and arms to ukraine
4: it's uh, fairly precise in uh, in numbers terms it's 4.6 billion is committed goes to about 5 billion when you add in some of the extras and you know that compares about a, it's less than a tenth of what the Americans are spending, but we're still the second biggest spender. And so as usual, the Americans are putting in, so far they've put in almost 50 billion and they're going up towards 90 billion. And then below our, say, 5 billion, you know, you've got Poland with two and a half billion, Germany with 2.4 billion, Canada with 1.3 billion, everybody else is lower than that. So as usual, you know, we're the the second biggest, but there's a big gap between us and the United States, of course.
0: And Simon, uh, you've been talking to both military and industry voices Mm. at the Arms and Equipment Trade Fair, DSEI, haven't you?
5: Yeah, I have. It so it was a huge fair this year, biggest in the 24-year history of, of DSEI. Lots of innovations you'd expect on show and obviously driven to a large part by, by what we're seeing in Ukraine. Many more UAVs, I noticed on show, many more loitering munitions than I remember even back in 2021. And, I mean, to flesh out what Mike was talking about, in terms of the numbers, I mean, there's a report saying $25 billion will be spent just, just on armoured vehicles alone in the next 10 years or so. And the loitering munitions market, that's going to grow by... 525 percent in just the mm. years since 2020, spending going to reach about 600 million pounds a year on those. And if you remember, Ben Wallace was talking about Ukraine being a battle lab, and you know, sadly, that is really what it's become. And you can see the sort of weapons and munitions that are coming down the track. Ukraine is obviously a, a very artillery driven. Conflict And BAE Systems, I spoke to them quite a lot, actually, and they're, they're unveiling a new 155mm artillery shell. And I managed to grab a, a word with Steve Cardew, who's the director uh, the firm's business development and strategy director. It was a very noisy stand, so apologies for that. But I asked him about how they're responding to the demand in Ukraine and, and the demand that it's creating.
3: I think, you know, in, in the aftermath of the conflict, you know, we obviously have a long-term ammunition relationship with the UK MOD. And very, very quickly, we mobilised... We had a whole series of joint meetings and workshops around what is the UK requirement, what's the UK response needed. Um, Our role was to offer innovation in terms of how we could quickly scale production um, and and, meet the demands that that the UK MoD were were, were placing on us. I mean, it is is a significant uplift. I mean, we're designing our facility to be an eightfold uh, increase over what we had previously. But I think, you know, you only have to look at the media to see the exact scale of, uh, of what's being fired on a daily basis.
5: I mean, what he's talking about, there's a new machining plant opening in the in the northeast to machine 155mm ordnance. There's a new factory in South Wales. And, and I asked Steve about that investment and also about a new 155mm round that they're developing, which is called the Next Generation Adaptive Ammunition, or NGA.
3: Yeah, so I think we sort of recognise that, you know, ammunition manufacturing has been unchanged for probably the best part of hundred years and actually the conflict in Ukraine forces us to rethink about how we how we approach that the reality is there are a whole bunch of uh, new technologies that we could be employing to manufacture ammunition which are common with other sectors so if we can harness that what it allows us to do is to use a broader range of facilities for production and therefore scale ammunition much more quickly than we're able to do today
5: and BAE actually are also, um, you may have read of opening um, an, an entity, an office in Ukraine as well. Um, they're looking to help Kiev produce some light artillery guns in, in the future and I, and I finished our chat by asking Steve what he and his colleagues really are taking, what their reflections are on watching this artillery war in Ukraine unfold.
3: Well, I think, I mean, the, the conflict is horrible, isn't it, I mean, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous person tragedy and I think, you know, for me, you know, for, for the people in our business, I mean, we sort of reflect on that and we see that on the news. Um, every day I think it's galvanized us you know we have a role to play as industry in the UK you know we need to be able to step up on our munitions quickly as we can and we need to support our UK uh, customer with the, their response to uh, supporting the ukrainians in the,
0: in the conflict uh, and Mike uh, how generally has the conflict led to new equipment and munitions
4: oh quite a lot I mean a lot of a lot of improvisation And lots of opportunities here for small, medium enterprises to work with the big primes with new ideas, bringing together technologies that don't normally fit together but do now. Because, you know, I think the Ukraine war has shown almost like a new domain of conflict, which is the the area above or below 5,000 feet, above the ground, up to 5,000 feet. And, you know, we talk about the domains of warfare, you know, air, sea, land, space, cyber. Well, it's almost Mm -hmm. like there's a new domain, which we ought to call the 5,000 feet strip. And within that, that that's drones, loitering munitions, lots of electronic jamming. You know, the aircraft, in a sense, have to operate above that. But below 5,000 feet is a whole new domain of warfare. And the Ukraine conflict has really we all, we always knew about it, but the Ukraine conflict has highlighted just how important that is to everything else that
5: goes on above it and below it.
0: Mm, really interesting, um, Simon. You've also been talking to Ukrainian defence mm. industry voices.
5: Yeah, and some that actually, you know, in, inhabit that domain. Mike was talking about there was a, um, a stand for Ukraine, um, very close to BAE actually, and, and on that stand they had a small company called Jet, who are just a very small startup showing videos of their the Kamikaze drones that they make. Uh, in Kyiv. They're showing videos of them hitting the Russian tanks and APCs You know, videos we've all seen on, on social media. Now, they weren't allowed to tell me how many of these they actually make, um, but it is a large number, I can tell you, and, and they also make their own, their own explosive containers that they drop from these drones. Uh, and I spoke to a young lady called Maria, um, and she told me how this company started out.
6: So our engineer, this was his hobby before the war, and then uh, they was started and uh, he decided to use such drones for uh, defending our country to, for defending our soldiers and uh, it just goes to mass production mass using as well on the front by soldiers our ukrainian soldiers
5: so this was effectively a guy whose hobby it was uh, yeah. to do drones yeah. and he's turned it into this yeah um tell me a bit about the drone and, and what you use it for
6: okay uh the drone has different components and we assemble it in ukraine Uh, It also has the bomb part, which we, uh, you can also use any grenades or something, but we make our own uh, bombs. Uh, The drone is one-way go, usually kamikaze, we call them kamikaze FPV drone, Uh, you target, aim the target and it just goes boom and you lose those money, but you also, but your enemy also loses uh, the tank or something, yeah?
5: And that has a range of 16 kilometers, yeah, you're saying? Yeah, the
6: range is uh, 16 kilometers at least. For the, for the
5: kamikaze drone, 16 yeah, kilometers. For yeah, for the
6: kamikaze drones. If you want to u- reuse it, uh, the range will be less because you have to come back by the drone, yeah. Also, um, why I like kamikaze, because you just send it to the target and you can pack your things and go. When you have to reuse the drone, you have to get it back, to put it in the bag, and it takes a lot of time and a lot of people,
5: yeah. And you were telling me you were studying engineering at university?
6: I used to, yes. And you
5: probably had ambitions to become an engineer and now you're doing this? Yes,
6: yes, I had to, yeah.
5: Uh, you could have left Ukraine, I guess, if you wanted to, perhaps, but mm, you...
6: Never had a thought of leaving Ukraine. It's my home, my homeland. Never betrayed, yeah.
5: And you've lost friends of yours, uh, you were saying a you, you deal with the military yeah. quite a lot. Yeah.
6: In the military sphere, you have many friends, many relatives out there, and you think of them every day, every hour, every second. And uh, sometimes we get um, information about their deaths or something, um, injuries, and it's really hard. So that's why we work on such products. We have. To, yeah.
0: uh, so Simon, a sense there of some of the manufacturing the Ukrainians mm. have been doing themselves. You also spoke to some Australian mm. manufacturers
5: yes uh, i spoke to a company called cypak um who are another kind of well-known now uh, company they're making these cardboard drones that you might have seen um used in ukraine these can fly about 100 kilometers or so these are aircraft drones like almost like a model aircraft really they, they cost about two and a half thousand pounds each you can put a shoe shoebox size payload inside them and, they, and they're literally held together with elastic bands it's quite incredible And these, these were the drones that ukrainians used to hit um kursk airfield Back at the end of last month, that's that's actually inside Russia, managing to damage uh, a MiG-29 and, and four Su-30 fighters uh, and also an air defence system. These are these are really cheap, pretty stealthy aircraft because they're made of cardboard. And the, in the case of Kursk, the interesting thing there is they didn't have to obliterate those jets, their fourth gen jets, those really, they just did enough to blow a hole effectively in those aircraft and put them out of action.
0: Mike, how much of an impact generally have drones been having in the battle overall?
5: Um, Oh, quite
4: a big one, both for surveillance and destruction. As Simon said, one of the interesting things is you don't have to carry a big payload to do some military damage. You can put things out of action. And you know, these SIPAC drones are very interesting in a negative way as well. The West supplies kit to Ukraine on the strict understanding that it does not use it to attack Russia directly. These little cardboard drones have attacked Kursk airfield inside Russia. Who supplies Mm. them? Australia. That's a Western country. This is where I really worry about these drone attacks inside Russia, because it actually creates a gray area that supports the Russian narrative that the West and Western equipment, and it may be cardboard, but it's Western equipment attacking Russia itself. Big, big issue this.
0: Yeah, an important point. And Simon, um, there have been many discussions at DSEI about the impact of Ukraine on UK military strategy.
5: Yeah, I mean clearly a very very big talking point and, uh, and I went to a breakfast briefing yesterday, very well attended, lots of interest and it's the focus of the Joint Warfare Directorate at the MOD uh, and I spoke to Rear Admiral Andrew Betton who is the Director of Joint Warfare at UK Strategic Command.
1: Russia's illegal in- invasion of Ukraine has uh, presented many different opportunities uh, for defence in the UK but actually around the world to reflect on what we see unfolding there and critically to learn from the experience of others. Clearly we work closely in support of our partners in Ukraine but also with NATO allies to help Ukraine adapt and develop their own capabilities in response to the current conflict. Uh, but through the formation of a specific team called the Russia-Ukraine Insights Hub established last year. We've done a lot of uh, research to distill the huge amount of information available from across academia, industry uh, and international defence fora uh, to work out how we can best move forward on those lessons and insights not just in our support to Ukraine but in the future development of UK defence
5: so you're not looking so much at the kind of tactical stuff uh, that's for others to look at. You're looking at a more of a, of, a, of a, almost a national picture.
1: Well from an MOD perspective we're seeking to take a broader view but we work very closely with the single domain warfare centres who are focused more at the tactical and higher, oper- lower operational level. My task has been to look at the upper operational and strategic uh, implications and the opportunities for us to learn from this tragedy, learn from this experience to inform our future development of the MOD but also our linkages particularly with other levers of national power and critically here at DSEI with industry.
5: So could you give me a couple of examples maybe of things that you've you learned, you've drawn from, from Ukraine?
1: There are many very well publicised examples of the speed of adaptation that we're witnessing on both sides of the conflict in Ukraine with uncrewed systems perhaps being the, the most prevalent. But many of the Well identified previous lessons about the scale of stockpiles, the depth of our capacity and the credibility of that capacity have really come home to roost uh, in what we've witnessed over the last 18 months. This is again a wake up call to the UK, but specifically to defence, to get after some of those longer term problems, but also recognise the way in which modern warfare has evolved, the speed of adaptation, the the necessity of agility across the whole defence industrial complex to be able to tackle the challenges that you face in the modern world.
5: Uh, And you were talking about also the MOD looking at itself this morning, being honest about where it's it's good, where it's not so good and, and, and making some changes there.
1: Yes, over many years we have audited certain capabilities and conducted reviews and we learn the lessons or identify the lessons from all sorts of activities. Uh, Historically we have not been so good at learning them and applying those lessons and drawing appropriately on the insights from activities and operations that we're engaged in. The the big difference with Ukraine is this is a conflict in which we are not directly engaged but we have the opportunity to draw some really detailed insights, not just from open source media and there is an awful lot of that, the academic and industrial analysis, but also our very close relationship with the Ukrainian military and and across the the NATO alliance that gives us uh, unprecedented insights into a rapidly evolving campaign across uh, all areas areas. The, the brutality, uh, the physicality, in many ways back to sort of early 1900, trench warfare, but then at the other end of the spectrum, hugely modern, rapidly evolving embracing of technology.
5: You're a very experienced military officer. I mean, how, how impressed have you been with the Ukrainian commanders that you've, you know, uh, had contact with? And, and also, and what have you learned from them?
1: I think it's um, very important to bear in mind that the uh, The situation in Ukraine presents opportunities for many people beyond Ukraine, as well as those on the the battlefield. Uh, So the interaction between uh, Ukrainian, military, international partners has been an extraordinary opportunity for us. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that our potential adversaries including uh, Russia in this instance as the aggressor in Ukraine, are learning from this experience too. And the speed with which they are adapting and learning uh, is also impressive. Um, generally speaking, uh, we're, we're very quick to praise Ukrainian progress and adaptability and that their audacious uh, tactics. Um, but the Ukrainians are, are also um, exposing this adaptability and agility to everybody else who's looking at it. So. Russians, uh, any other potential aggressors, uh, non-state actors are also learning from that experience. But the uh, the resilience and the national unity that we've seen uh, from the Ukrainian people is humbling.
5: So, if you had a crystal ball and you were looking ahead, you know, ten years, the information that you're gleaning and the lessons learned, what do you think that's going to mean for the UK military? You know, in, in a decade's time, perhaps. Or what do you think it might, be, how it might be different?
1: This is, the experience of the Ukraine conflict um, is absolutely a tragedy uh, but it is I think a once in a generation opportunity uh, to draw really profound insights and lessons um, from a modern Western uh, battlefield that will accelerate our development towards the future integrated force and reinforce the criticality of the relationship between the military, other uh, arms of government, and our industrial base has to be seen as as a totality. And extending from that the resilience of our population, um, the ability to scale up not just the defence supply chain, but if necessary, defence itself. So the importance of our reserves and the ability to expand that reserve in time of national need.
0: That was Rear Admiral Andrew Betton. Um, Really interesting, Simon. Where can we see the rest of the interviews and things you've been gathering that from DSEI?
5: Well, they'll be on our our Forces News uh, website, forces.net, and across our social media channels um, in the next couple of days. So yeah, really interesting chat with him
0: thanks Simon. Um, well, the head of the Army, General Sir Patrick Sanders, recently stressed how important it is to build the lessons of Ukraine into the uk 's own force design.
7: Of course the, you know the war has been a crucible for, 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 for learning and adaptation um, and perhaps the biggest lesson I mean there are you know, I could talk all day about the lessons that we draw from Ukraine and how we're building that into our own force design, you know how it's affected future soldier, but perhaps the single I say the two most important things are, first of all, the importance of, of morale and of will. You know, there it's very clear, the two armies that are fighting on that battlefield, which one has the most powerful sense of will and cohesion. And that, in warfare, will always see you through. And then the second is around adapt- adaptability. So, you know, it's Darwinian, you know, the. The species that adapts the fastest is the one that prevails and, and survives, not necessarily the strongest.
0: And how significant within that discussion is, you know, the emergence truly of drone warfare and the amount of drones that are involved in this conflict?
7: Hugely. Um, but you sh- we shouldn't get ourselves drawn into sort of techno fetishism or assuming that that changes in technology will change the, the the nature of war itself you know the the so the, the the battles with the drones are are critically important and you know we've invested ten and a half million just this year in making sure that when our troops train in places like salisbury plain they've got swarms of drones over them so that they can adapt and also learn how to exploit them themselves but equally you know The numbers of casualties, the rates of advance, the number of armoured vehicles and tanks that are lost to drones actually hasn't changed significantly in this conflict compared to previous conflicts as well. So you, you won't win if you don't constantly adapt and you don't exploit these new techniques and procedures. That's why the adaptation matters so much, but the advantage is always quite slight because the enemy then responds, so it's a constant process of adaptation.
0: And you can hear the full interview with General Sanders talking to Sean Kreschek on our radio app or wherever you get your SITREP podcast. Um, Mike, just going back to that interview that Simon did with the Director of Joint Warfare at UK Strategic Command, um, just how crucial is that work that's being done by Rear Admiral Andrew Betton and his team?
4: Oh, yeah, it's fundamental to modern warfare because it's so important to get combined arms operations moving properly, and to make sure that they're consistent with a strategic plan. I mean, you know, all wars, somebody said to me that wars are, are where leaders wrestle with chaos. That's what you're doing. You're wrestling with chaos. Mm-hmm. And that's in the nature of warfare. And so the ability to maintain some control over that is really, really important. And of course, I mean, that you know, the, the benefits are only marginal as between one force and another. But those marginal benefits are critical. If one force is 85% good at them and one force is 90% good at them, you know who's going to win.
0: Mm, Interesting what General Sanders is saying about new, new technologies there as well and the adaptability.
4: Yeah, it still comes down to people. As he said, the nature of warfare doesn't change. The characteristics change all the time. The way wars are fought is constantly changing. But the nature of warfare, it's a struggle of willpower in the use of lethal force and you win that battle of willpower, both by the the morale of your forces, their their sort of psychological moral force, but also their adaptability. And you can have the best technology in the world. You still have to have the people who can operate it with imagination and adaptability. And I think, as he says, you know, that hasn't changed since the days of Alexander the Great.
0: News, discussions and analysis. This is Zitrap. Well, the message that armed forces should have learnt the lessons of previous wars in Europe is at the heart of a new book. It's by former head of the Army General Lord Dannett, along with Robert Lyman, and is called Victory to Defeat, the British Army 1918 to 1940. The book's just out and I caught up earlier with Richard Dannett.
2: The really important thing is that in the 20s and 30s, after the First World War, There was such a feeling in this country that the First World War was so ghastly, so awful, that there must never be another war. It was indeed to be the war to end wars. And in fact, that was then articulated in government policy that there would be no planning for a major war for 10 years. And that rolled forward year on year. And of course, with that policy in place, it was possible for the Chancellor of the Exchequer of the Day to really put very little money uh, into our our, our defence budget. Well, that that was fine probably through the twenties and early thirties, despite the uh, difficult economic situation of the Wall Street crash and the great depression and the general strike, but um, still we were spending nothing much on defense. But then in 1933, uh, Hitler came to power and gradually wanted to show that he wanted to expand German influence. He wanted to embrace into a greater Germany all the German speaking peoples, which is why he then occupied the, the Rhineland in 1936 Uh, threatened to take over, and then did take over, chunks of Czechoslovakia. And eventually our government confronted him in the Munich Agreement uh, and tried to appease him in in 1938. Um, Appeasement failed, and only then did the British government decide that they had to rapidly start to rearm. Well, we began to put some more money into the Air Force, fortunately just Mm -hmm. enough money to procure enough fighters to eventually win the Battle of Britain later in 1940, but very little money went into our army. With the result that when the Germans attacked in May, June, 1940, with a very modernized army based around what we call popularly blitzkrieg, an armored force spearheading their attack, uh, the French army and the British expeditionary force were, were no match for them. And very sadly, we were defeated in France. Fortunately, the army was not annihilated because Lord Gort, the commander in chief, Made the very sensible decision to evacuate Vardan Kirk and save the army, but the big point really is, is that came about because we were too slow to heed the growing threat in Europe. Big question today is there is a huge threat in Europe, not just a threat. We've already seen Putin conducting an ugly war in Ukraine. The question today is, are we rearming? Are we putting more money into our defence budget? No, we're not. So are we doomed to have to learn the lesson of history again?
0: Uh, And to to drill down a little bit more into the detail that you outline in the book, um, Great Britain had put uh, its largest army ever into the field during the First World War. And you write that between August and November in 1918, it found the formula for operational and tactical success on the battlefield. Can you describe a bit more about that?
2: Absolutely. And this is absolutely key to the book. The popular image of the First World War is of lions led by donkeys, generals who didn't know what they were doing and long lines of British troops getting up out of their trenches and advancing shoulder to shoulder slowly across no man's land into the teeth of German guns and being killed in large numbers. And of course, on the 1st of July, 1916, on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, that was pretty much what happened. But that was because it was a brand new army, hastily recruited, and the level of training was such that they couldn't really expect large numbers of troops, to act in any other way. But lessons began to be learned very quickly, and tactics changed, and the approach to warfare changed. So that by the Hundred Days campaign of August to November 1918, the British Army had become much more sophisticated, had integrated infantry with armor, with artillery, much better communications, integrated the air component to be able to spot from the air, and also the beginnings of what we now call mission command, rather than just soldiers advancing in serried ranks. Uh, units were given objectives. The commanding officers were given some latitude as to how to go about it. And we had the early beginnings of what we now call a maneuverist approach to warfare. And that was very successful. The tragedy is, going back to the earlier point, is that there was such a determination that this would be the war to end wars. Mm-hmm. Our huge army was demobilized very quickly. Uh, there was a 10-year rule in place, but critically also, the army failed to capitalize on taking into its inner core, into its DNA, the lessons that it painfully learned and demonstrated so successfully in the Hundred Days campaign of 1918. In the late 20s, early 30s, there was some mild uh, experimentation with the tank force, but it it came to nothing. So consequently, when our army deployed in 1939, it was a large army, uh, pretty poorly trained actually, A lot of territorial divisions uh, sent to France without much equipment or training. Some of them just actually sent to dig trenches. Um, They were mechanized in lorries, but they faced an enemy who had seen what had happened in 1918, had seen how you could integrate armor and infantry and air very effectively. And they had learned the lessons and embodied them into their army, their army which broke through the Ardennes and attacked us in May, June, 1940. And we really had no answer for it. And it was a real tragedy. So... There are political reasons, economic reasons that the army has to take some responsibility for not having taken into itself um, the warfighting doctrine that it had learned so painfully uh, during the course of the First World War.
0: That was General Lord Dannett. Um, Mike, um, interesting listening to what he had to say there. Um, do you necessarily have to be a good historian to be a good military leader?
4: Uh, no, but it helps, as Lord Dannett I think, was making clear. I think all, you know, all military leaders take their early experiences into senior levels with them. And I mean, he mentioned there, you know, John Gort and it's the same with Montgomery, uh, with Slim, with Alexander. They were all First World War people. And of course, Gort and Montgomery and Alexander were all Western front men. Slim was a Middle East man in the First World War. And they take those experiences with them. And they, as it were, learned from that. But the point is that, you know, history, they, they, they need to be have a sense of historical perspective. I mean, history doesn't repeat itself, but my goodness, it rhymes. That's, it's, mm. it's often been said by many people, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And in military affairs, those rhymes are quite loud and persistent. And you've got to actually understand those rhymes, but put them into perspective. And that's really what the military commander has always had to try to do.
0: Mike, great to speak to you today. Thank you so much for your time and my thanks to all of our guests. That's all for now. We'll be back with another sit rep next Thursday. If you want to listen online, you can do so now by finding us on Forces News YouTube channel where we are, as well as our home at bfbs.com/slash sit rep or wherever you download your podcasts. For now though, from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.